Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now, please enjoy our sermon at Church on the Hill. All right, um, so we are in this series talking about the life of David, and last week, Scott got into some pretty heavy stuff talking about what happens when we just avoid issues. And in the midst of that message, Scott was like, hey, next week, come back, and we will talk about how to process all of that, okay? And then the idea of that got Scott sick, so he's not coming back. (laughs) Yeah. And the weird thing was, last night on the broadcast, I was like, wait, is that Scott at the Niner game? But... I know. Uh, no. Uh, to be real, though, Scott is definitely not feeling good, and so I got the call late of this week letting me know that I get to come and fill in. Um, and two things with that. One, Scott is very much not a I got the sniffles and so I'm going to sit this one out type of person. So for Scott to have to sit something out, uh, be praying for him, because I don't know which bug that's been going around he got. But he is a tough dude, and for him to sit one out means that he is really not feeling good. So he could use some prayer to heal that body because for him to take one off, um, not a good situation for him. The other thing, bear with me a little bit because we got a message, but we do not have totally full notes for you guys, or there might be some things where you're like, why is that not up on the screen? Uh, The message was put together late, and for those of you guys that are like, Josh, you usually don't really have notes, you're right, but in this case, I have an excuse, so I'm going to use it. So that's why that's there. Uh, But with that, uh, as Scott talked about last week, and he warned you last week, we are in 2 Samuel. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapters 16 to 19. I'm not going to read all of them, but I am going to summarize them. But what we find there and in the chapters before that we're talking about is definitely not a G-rated affair. Um, So if you have kids in the room, or if you're watching online and you have your kids with you, Here is your warning that it would be a good time for them to go to kids' ministry or middle school ministry or whatever it is. I know for me as a father with young kids, there is some content we will be talking about that I would not want to explain. So I'll just leave it at that. And here's your opportunity. If you're going to go, I gave you a chance. If not, you know, it's up to you from here on out. Um, So let me pray for us, and then we will get started. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for every person in this room, Lord, and as we dive into some passages that they're heavy and they're difficult and they contain hurtful stuff, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would give us all wisdom in this room, and that you would help us process through some things that are not what you wanted to have happen, Lord, but we live in a fallen world, and so you use them. Lord, I ask that you would be with all of us this morning. And I thank you for this opportunity, and I thank you for your word that guides us through the hard times of life and the good times, Lord. Father, we love you. Amen. So this morning, I have to give you guys a summary of what Scott talked about and where we've been in the life of David, because really we're just continuing on with the story of what's going on. And so I'm going to try to condense it down as much as possible, 
but we pick up at a pretty rough place because what Scott talked about last week was the kind of the drama going on in David's life. And what takes place is one of David's sons, Amnon, is really just makes a horrible, evil choice, and he decides to rape his sister, Tamar. I know, we're starting out heavy. But Amnon rapes his sister, Tamar, and in that passage, it says that David finds out about this and that he's outraged. He's so angry about it, but he chooses to do nothing. And so Tamar's brother Absalom, who's the half-brother of Amnon, takes Tamar in and decides to be the one to step up and help her, but he gives her terrible advice and says, hey, this is your brother, don't tell anyone about it. And so we have this crazy dysfunction right here at the start. And then what takes place is really a whole lot more dysfunction. What we get after that is Absalom has Tamar living with him. He's taking care of her, but David continues to do nothing. So Absalom decides, okay, as her brother, I'm going to step in and I'm going to make things right. And so he calls Amnon over to his house and he tells him they're having a party or whatever else. And then he has his men kill Amnon. So Absalom murders his brother. And when Absalom murders his brother, he knows that even as the son of the king, you're not allowed to kill a son of the king. And so he flees the country, and he goes and he lives someplace else. Now, we find out that David still knows about this. David knows what's going on, but he does nothing. He doesn't address it. He doesn't take care of it. He doesn't go get his son. And finally, what takes place is Joab, who's the leader of David's army, decides to step in and go, this isn't healthy. And so he sends a woman to meet with David to hear a case in which she says, I have two sons and one of them killed the other, but now I don't have a relationship with either because the one that's still surviving is afraid of the consequences. So he won't come around. And so I don't get to be with him. And David says, that's not right. That's not how it should be. I will protect him, bring him back. And she says, David, joke's on you. This story's not about me. It's about you. And David realizes that Joab, the commander of his army, has set this whole thing up. And so he tries to do the right thing, or he partially does the right thing. And he sends for his son Absalom, and he brings Absalom back. But when he brings him back, he doesn't do the right thing. He lets him live, essentially, as his neighbor. But he says, I don't even want my son Absalom to look upon my face. He's not even allowed to look at me. And so he brings him back, but he has no relationship and no connection. And Absalom is living right next to his father, but he has no connection with him. And so Absalom, as happens a lot when someone doesn't have the affection that they need from a parent, begins to act out. And he asks Joab, hey, Joab, I need to talk to my dad. Joab doesn't respond to him. And so he goes and he lights Joab's field on fire. That gets his attention. And so Joab sets up a meeting for David and Absalom, and he finally gets to go before his dad, and he goes before his dad, and his dad kisses him, but there's no conversation, there's no connection, and there's no restoration. Again, he just avoids it. 
And Absalom goes from hurting to hurting and angry and getting a little crazy. And Absalom takes things farther. And what he decides is that he decides to take essentially the heart of the people of the kingdom. And he goes and in a manipulative way takes over the kingdom. And then at a set time, he pays trumpeters to go into these towns, blow the horns and say, Absalom is now the king. And it works. And he takes his father's kingdom. And then he takes all of the men that he now has, all the people of his kingdom that he now has, and he starts marching towards his father's palace to kill his father and to take over the kingdom. And what happens there is David takes his family and takes those that are close to him, and he flees the palace, and he flees the area to try to prevent the bloodshed. And that's where Scott left you guys last week. David and his family are mourning and weeping as they walk out of Jerusalem as his son is coming to kill him and to take the kingdom. And at that point, it kind of feels like we should be able to take a breath, right? You would think like, hey, maybe the drama is going to slow down. Nope, gets worse. Okay, so here we go. The first thing that Absalom does when he takes over is he goes to Ahithophel. Ahithophel is the one who was David's advisor. He was the one that David listened to when he needed advice on something. And so Absalom takes his father's advisor and he says, what should I do? And Ahithophel's advice to him is take your father's 10 concubines who he left here to take care of the palace Take them to the roof of the palace where the entire kingdom can see and have sex with all of them. Make a statement. Let them know that your father's reign is over and you're in charge now. And Absalom does it. And you look at that, and I've often wondered as I read that, why would that be the advice? And a little nugget that I think is important that we don't necessarily know right from just the reading is Ahithophel was not only David's advisor, he was also Bathsheba's grandpa. And if you remember what happened with Bathsheba, Bathsheba is the one where David went out onto his palace roof, looked over the kingdom, saw a woman that was beautiful to him and said, I want her, bring her to me and slept with her. A little bit of, you know, reoccurring behaviors in the family. But what we find out, and it's not in the text, so I'm assuming this, but I think it's a safe assumption, is that Ahithophel is the grandpa of the woman that that happened to, and he has been hurting for years, and he's never addressed it. Because David's the king, so what do you do? And now when he finally gets his opportunity to strike back, this is the advice for Absalom. And he does it. And this horrible thing happens to 10 women that never should have taken place. Now, after that happens, Absalom's next move is he decides, all right, I'm taking my men. I'm going to march out. I'm going to go find David, my father and the king. We're going to kill him, and the kingdom is officially going to become mine. And in this battle, in this civil war, there's 20,000 men that lose their life. And as Absalom is riding his donkey in the middle of this war, he goes through this thicket and it says that there's these low-hanging oak branches and his hair gets caught in the oak branches and the donkey rides out from underneath him and he is suspended from the tree by his hair. 
David's men see this and they go and tell Joab, the commander of the army, Joab takes three spears and he goes and he puts them in the heart of Absalom. And it says David's men surround Absalom and they kill him. And then what takes place is the messengers run to David and they tell David, David, the kingdom is yours again. It's time to celebrate. We have victory. We've won. And David says, what happened to Absalom? And they tell him that he's dead. And instead of a time of celebration for the kingdom, David goes inside and he weeps and he cries out, my son, my son, Absalom. And then in the midst of this, Joab, the commander of the army, finds out what David is doing, and he goes to David, and in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 5 to 8, it says this. It says, Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all men who have just saved your life and the lives of the sons and the daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You love those who hate you, and you hate those that love you. David, your son hated you and he was coming to kill you. And the men here that protected you and your family, you're disregarding all that they just did. You hate those, or you love those that hate you and you hate those that love you. It says, you have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So so the king got up, took his seat at the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting at the gateway, they all came before him. And so David, at the prodding of Joab, goes back and he takes over the kingdom again and he begins to reign again. Now, you can take a deep breath. (laughs) We're done with the drama-filled part of Scripture, okay? I didn't like doing it either. Scott said I had to. (laughs) It's a heavy, hard passage, and right now, what I want us to do is I want us to transition for something, and I think the important thing that we have to ask at this point is, what is all of this supposed to mean? We just read so much content. It's so heavy. There's so many hard things there. What are the things that we're supposed to take from it for our lives? How does this make any sense for us? What is the wisdom that we can glean from it? And what I want to do this morning is just get really tangible with you guys and really just kind of pick it apart and break some things down to go, okay, how does this apply for us? So here we go. The first thing that I think is incredibly important is we have to stop believing the lie that your past disqualifies you for the future. You have to stop believing the lie that your past mistakes, your struggles, your issues, the places you've messed up disqualify you for being used by God in the future. For most of us in this room, when we started talking about David, you probably thought that David's biggest mistake was with Bathsheba and Uriah, and then the rest was kind of smooth sailing. Turns out, not the case. David messed up all over the place. David's sons are murdered probably because of his inactivity, and you can probably put the blood of 20,000 men that lost their life in a war on him for not addressing what was going on with his son. 
David didn't just make one mistake. David's life is littered with mistakes. And yet David is referred to as one of the men of faith. He's referred to as a man after God's own heart. And what we have to take from that is your past and your mistakes and your baggage, no matter how severe and how significant, do not disqualify you for a future with God's kingdom. And I know so many of us in this room continue to hold on to the issues and to the sins and the struggles of the past. And what I'm saying up here today is not that it's not a big deal. For some of you, there's big things. There's adultery, there's cheating, there's lying, there's full-on slander, there's intentional harm of other people. There's all kinds of evil represented in this room. And I'm not sitting here trying to minimize it and say, it's okay, or it's not that big of a deal. What I'm saying is, it's not about you. Your future The fact that you're useful in the kingdom of God, the fact that you still have a future, the fact that there is still great things to come for you is not based on what you've done. What we learn from David, especially with Bathsheba, is he goes back after being confronted about what he's done. And in that psalm, he says, God, it is by your mercy, it is because of your love, it is because of your character, God, it is because of who you are that I can rest in you, that I can have a future, that I can produce good things, that there is still things for me. And for us in this room, we have to remember that our past does not get the opportunity to disqualify us for the future because our future is not based on what we've done. It's based on who he is. So quit buying the lie that what you've done is too much or it's too messed up. We see this throughout scripture over and over again, that God is constantly using the ones that doesn't seem like the ones he should be using. If you guys remember what happened in Peter's life, the first time Peter meets Jesus, he's sitting in a boat and Jesus teaches from his boat and he begins to realize this guy's the Messiah. Like this is him. He's the one. And he realizes Jesus is actually Jesus. And you know what Peter's first words to Jesus are? He says, get away from me because I'm a sinful man. God, uh, Jesus, I'm a mess. Just leave me. And you know what Jesus says? He says, Peter, why don't you come follow me? How about we hang out for the next few years? I've got things in store for you, Peter, that you never would have imagined. And for us in this room, I think Jesus is saying the exact same thing is you are so deeply just underestimating what you have to offer. You think you've been disqualified, but Jesus is sitting there going, if you just follow me, I've got things in store for you that you don't even imagine. But you can't keep disqualifying yourself. The next thing that I think is incredibly important we get to take from this is we have to own and confront our stuff. We have to process it and not bury it. When we look at the ripple effect of David's life, it is catastrophic and it is crazy. 
If David would have dealt with what took place with Tamar, it would have saved his son's life who was murdered. If David would have dealt with Absalom, it would have saved 20,000 men and ultimately Absalom's life. There's all these things that took place because it wasn't dealt with. And often we buy into this lie that if we take our pain, if we take our hurt, if we take our suffering and we just bury it inside of us, it will die and it will go away. But the truth is, when we bury our pain, our hurt, and our suffering, it does not die and go away. It grows and it intensifies. When we have hurt and we have that pain, it does not lessen when it lives inside of us. It grows and gets worse. We see this with Absalom. The man just wanted to have a relationship with his father and the continually not getting it and not getting it drove him to this place where he was killing his brother. He was taking over the kingdom. 20,000 men lost their life and he ultimately lost his. Because the unprocessed pain doesn't die and go away. It grows and it intensifies. For Ahithophel, 10 women had a terrible thing happen to him that never should have happened because he had something happen to his granddaughter that he never processed through. And so the anger raged on and got worse and worse and worse and the sin grew. And for some of us, we understand this all too well. We just came through the holiday season and for some of us, we cannot do family get-togethers because five years ago at Thanksgiving, your sibling who was supposed to bring the mashed potatoes brought something else or because they were store-brought. And because they're store-brought, it just shows that they never put in the effort that you put in and they never actually care about the family and they've never invested and that sibling's just never been the one, so we're just done with them. And it sounds crazy, but uh uh-oh, it's the truth and it's what just took place for a lot of us. Because unprocessed pain and hurt does not die, it grows and intensifies and creates a story that's worth, worse along with it. The other thing we have to be aware of is the backward thinking and actions that suffering creates. The backwards thinking and suffering, or backwards thinking and actions that suffering creates. For Amnon, it says that he hated Tamar after he raped her. Amnon didn't hate Tamar. What Amnon hated was that when he saw Tamar, he was reminded of how evil and messed up he was. But instead of processing that and doing the hard work of processing through that garbage that was inside of him, he projected it on her and got rid of her because it was easier to make her the scapegoat than to deal with the evil and messed up that actually lived inside of him. And in this backwards messed up way, he said, I hate Tamar. Amnon didn't hate Tamar, he hated himself, and she was a reminder of that. That same situation with David. His son Absalom lives in a different country for years. He brings him back by the palace, and he won't even let him look at his face. For five years, he treats his son as though he is dead. And he continues it even after that. For years and years, he treats his son as though he is dead. He has no relationship and he has no connection with him. 
And then when he actually dies, he mourns and he weeps and he struggles. Even though he was just acting like he was dead for the previous decade. And for some of you, I'm going to tread on some personal ground right now. But for some of you, you have relationships, whether it's a parent or a sibling or a former close friend, where we go, you used to be so connected, but I have nothing to do with that person anymore. And my fear for you is that when you actually don't have the chance to have anything to do with that person anymore, it's going to cut you and hurt you in a way that you don't understand. Unprocessed pain and hurt does not die and go away when we bury it inside of us. It grows and intensifies. And it leads to horrible things. So the question then becomes, how do we process pain and suffering? How do we do it right? And the answer I would say is we do what David did when David did it right. The first circumstance we get, or the first thing I would say is you listen to wise counsel. Two of the best moves that David makes in his reign is when he listens, when Nathan comes and confronts him and he says, David, what you did to Uriah and what you did to Bathsheba was terrible and wrong. And David says, you're right. I have sinned against God. And he repents and he turns and he asks God for forgiveness and he bases his life on who God is, not who he is. And when Joab gets creative and sends a woman in to trick him about the issue he has with his son, he at least gets it partly right and he goes back and he brings his son back to the kingdom. So step one is you listen to wise counsel. The next thing we find from David that was a good move is this. In Psalm chapter 3, it says this. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. So when Absalom is coming to attack him, this is David fleeing. And in the midst of that, this is what David writes. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So the first step is this. Write it out. Take the suffering, take the pain, take the struggle, take the issue, and write it out. I'm not saying think about it. I'm not saying spend some time thinking about it. I'm saying literally take a pen, put it on paper, and write it out. Psychology tells us that something very significant happens when we get it out of our head and actually put it out in front of us. Write it out. If we had more time this morning, I would literally ask you to write it out right now because that's how significant this step is. But take it, get it out of your head, and put it on paper in front of you. And then, acknowledge who God is in the midst of it. 
David says, Lord, you are the shield around me. You are my glory and you are the one that will lift my head high. Acknowledge who God is. Understand that in the midst of your pain and suffering, he is still in control. He still got you. You still have a future. He's still going to take care of you. Acknowledge who God is. Then the next step is rest in him. David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake up again because the Lord sustains me. And so often when we're in the midst of struggle, we take all of it and we try to bear the entire load by ourselves and it wrecks our lives. We can't sleep. We can't function. We can't do much of anything. And what David does here is so wise to say, I'm going to rest in the Lord. He's the one that sustains me. He's the one that will figure this out. I just have to follow him. And then the last thing David does is he tells God what he wants. And so I would say the last thing is make a request of him. Tell God what you want. Write out what you're asking, what your heart's desire is, what you want the outcome to be. Write it out. And then this isn't from David, but this is what I would say to you is this. Create a time and a space to spend time with God and seek him in that. And I don't mean flippantly in your car on the way to work. I mean, really set apart a time. Find a place where you feel most comfortable. Find a place where you feel most connected to God. Find a place where you feel like you can really bear your soul and take that paper and go before God and say, God, here's what's going on. What am I supposed to do next? God, please give me the next step. But lay it out and seek him and seek his counsel. The next thing that I think we have to know from this passage is this. We have to remember that God loves us. But we have to be wise enough to know what love is. We have to remember that God loves us, but we have to be wise enough to know what love is. Because often our idea of love is that we get what we want, when we want, how we want, where we want, with who we want. And the truth is, that's not love, that's greed. But we have this whole idea of what things are supposed to be, and we think to get it that way is what love is. But the truth is, that's not love. The image that comes to mind for me is the kid that just has the screen because they want the screen, right? When a young kid wants screen time, when do they want screen time? All the time. And for a parent to just go, here, have it, have it, have it, have it, that's not actually loving, that's lazy. And the reason why it's not loving is because we know that's not what's best for that child. And what love is, is what's best for someone, not what's easiest. And we have to grab hold of that and we have to remember that. And the way I would say it is this, God loves you enough to let you struggle. You have to remember that God loves you enough to let you struggle because the truth that all of us know but that we don't like to confront is that it's in the midst of struggle that we actually grow. Our foundations are built in the midst of struggle. 
It's in the midst of pain and suffering when something really hurts and you guys know what this is like when you feel your heart breaking and you feel the overwhelming pain and the struggle and you don't want to bear it and you don't want to be a part of it. But in the midst of that, you understand that what you're getting is a small glimpse of what God has done for you. And as your heart breaks, you realize, God, your heart must have broken so much more when you gave your son to die so I could have a relationship with you. And in the midst of pain and in the midst of struggle, you begin to realize how loved you actually are. And you begin to form that foundational relationship, which makes you think of Philippians where it says there will be a peace that transcends all understanding because you know what it is to have your soul connected to him. But you don't get it on easy street. We don't get that through an easy life. So God loves you enough to let you suffer, to let you struggle because he understands what it's producing in you and what it's producing in you can't be produced without it. In the future, you will have a much greater relationship with Christ and you will look a much more like Christ, but you can't get there without it. So we have to stop telling ourselves the lie that when things hurt and when we struggle and when we suffer through things that God doesn't care or he's not a part of it because the truth is God loves you enough to let you go through it. Because it's going to produce in you something that would not be produced without it. And the last thing that I think is incredibly important as we close is this. We have to remember God's truth. When we struggle, we have to remember God's truth. Because all too often, when we struggle, the questions that we ask are, God, why is this happening? How long is this going to go on for? And what's the outcome going to be? And the truth is, even if God told you why this was happening, it wouldn't change the fact that you're hurting, and it wouldn't change the circumstance. But God's truth is what we actually need. And so what I want us to do today is I'm going to ask us to read through God's truth to close this. I want us to hold on, to take hold of God's truth as we talk about pain and suffering and hurt and to remember the promises God has because truthfully, that's going to be what gets us through. So we're going to read this together. There's four things that we're going to read together. And the first one is this. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 to 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Truth number one is this. You do not struggle alone. God has never put you in something where he's asked you to do it by yourself or on your own. When you go through things in all of life, you never walk alone. He will never leave you. Hebrews 12, 5b to 7. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. 
Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. And the second truth is this. Your suffering is not in vain. God will do something with it. And it will not be without a reason. But when you struggle, you do not suffer in vain. The third one is this, Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And the truth is this. God's at work in ways that you don't see or understand. And just because you don't get it and you don't understand it doesn't mean God's not at work and doesn't mean God's not doing something with it. God is at work in ways that you don't see and you don't understand, but he is still working. So the truth is this. You do not struggle alone. You do not suffer in vain. And God is at work in ways you don't see or understand. And as we close, I want us to read Isaiah 41.10 together. Because I want us to grab onto this truth and let it sink deep in our hearts. It says, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let me pray. Lord God, as we dive into a hard, heavy message, I ask that your truth would be what people take from this, Lord. That the one thing people would really remember is the truth of your word and how much you love us, Lord. Lord, you love us so much, you will let us struggle and you will refine us. Lord, what I ask is that in the midst of that is that we run to you and we seek you. We don't just bury it. Lord, use this time to grow us in you, to help us discover the depth of your love for us and to allow us to rest in that, Lord. Lord, may we know we do not do it alone. We do not do it in vain. I love you, Lord. Amen.